week at camp, and the theme that we were looking at at camp this year was, who do you say that I am? And uh, first of all, I just want to ask you guys a question. This question is maybe just as personal as who do you say that I am. This question is, as an adult, who still likes to dress up for Halloween? Should be willing to raise your hand. It's pretty personal, isn't it? Some of us have never grown out of that. And I still like to kind of dress up sometimes for Halloween. But one of the best costumes that I ever had for Halloween is when I dressed up as a personal trainer. And it's kind of ironic because I am a personal trainer, and I was a personal trainer back then, but I decided that I was going to change my look a little bit this year. So instead of kind of the, kind of the medium-build, American-looking, normal-guy personal trainer, I decided that I was going to go European and kind of look like I was on roids. And so I, uh, I decided that I was going to be Gunter, the European, maybe the Austrian, roided-up personal trainer. And, uh, and so me and Gunter, we, had, we definitely had some similarities about the same height, stuff like that, but there were some major differences. One of the major differences was Gunter had jet black hair that was a mullet. Okay, so long in the back, kind of short in the front. Gunter also wore a white headband around his head, kind of a sweatband. Um, Gunther had a lot of socks and rolled up t-shirts like underneath kind of his shoulders and arms and traps and chest and around his thighs so he he looked like he was you know kind of showing off his hugeness he was kind of big and um, <clears throat> but there was there were some things uh, that were the same about Gunther and I and one of the things that was the same was we were we were wearing the same garb that all the trainers were at Health Point so it was kind of a collared navy collared shirts at Health Point on it and then some khaki pants and, uh, and so I decided that that year I was going to start Halloween a little early, and at 5 a.m. when I went to Health Point to work, uh, I wore my Gunter outfit. And so um, from a distance, I got, and as people got closer, I still got a lot of second and third glances as to like, okay, he looks like, he's dressed like a trainer here, but man, he looks like a weirdo. What is the deal with that guy? And like his muscles aren't proportional, you know, because some of the socks had moved and stuff like that. But everybody looking at me was like, I think he works. I don't know. He's wearing the same garb. I'm not real sure. But the best story that I got out of the day came really early. And my friend Terry, who's actually here today, I'd been training him for a while. And I saw Terry coming in the front door. And I was like, I'm going to go over and see if Terry recognizes me, see how long it takes him to recognize me. So I walk over there, and he's, he's kind of zoned in, and he's ordering something from the front desk, and I walk over there, and I stand about from me to this music stand away from him, and in my best kind of Austrian accent, I said, how you doing? And he kind of glances over, and he's like, fine, thanks for asking, you know. And I immediately ask him, well, what are you ordering? And uh, getting a banana or, you know, whatever he was getting. And, and then I said, well, why are you ordering that? And he looked at me with some fury in his eyes, and he was like, that's none of your business. And he's looking straight at me, and I'm looking straight back at him, and I said, Terry, it's Andy. Kind of does the confused puppy dog look, cocks head to the side, and looks down at my name tag, which I had put Gunter over the name, but my, my picture was still on there, and he was like, oh, okay. Andy, all right, I, I got it now. I got it now. He was looking right at me and didn't recognize me. And Terry knew me well enough to pick me out of a crowd. He knew me well enough to know what I looked like, to, to recognize me. But when I changed my look a little bit, and I wasn't, 
I didn't look exactly like the Andy that he had known, then he had no idea who I was. And I wonder how many of us, and how much of the world, has had an encounter with God like that. You have a picture of who God is, you, you think you know what he's like, and then Jesus shows up in your life, or Jesus showed up on the scene like he did 2,000 years ago, and all of a sudden people are like, now I know God, and I know what God's like, and you're claiming to be God, but I'm not real sure about that. I'm a little confused about who you're really saying that you are, and people had issues with that. People had issues with that a long time ago. People still have issues with that today, and, and uh, we're going to watch a video clip, and this clip is maybe something that you've seen before where somebody kind of goes out on the street and they interview people about Christianity or faith or whatever. And this guy's going around, and he's asking people, what do you think about Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? And so let's check out this clip and see what people are saying today. My savior. Good guy. Um, love, compassion, um, diversity. Easter, loving, bearded, kind. Got a good op opinion of Jesus Christ, that's for sure. Excellent man, wonderful. Sure, they had a religion after him. My savior. Actually, Jesus was the first punk rocker. Yeah? Yeah. He's, he's pretty cool, and I like him a lot. Savior. Black. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, I think it's good. Because it's Jesus. What else would you think of? I'm definitely um, altruistic philanthropy. Loving, peaceful, sincere. So outside of maybe the punk rocker comment, that one was maybe iffy, but most, she said, hey, I think Jesus is really cool. I mean, most of these people that they're interviewing are saying, hey, I, th I really think a lot of Jesus. Some people said that he's the Savior, but I don't think I caught really anybody saying negative things about Jesus. Everybody has a pretty great opinion about who Jesus is. And um, believe it or not, we still live in a very spiritual and a religious society. In fact, the survey that was done in 2007 by the Pew Research Group of 35,000 Americans, that's a lot of people, they found that 92% of people in America say, I believe in God. So we have a lot of people that say, yeah, I know God. I know he's there. I know what he's like. And those same people, 74% of them, two out of, or three out of every four, said that I believe in eternity. I believe in eternal life. I believe there's something after this life. And so we live in a spiritual and a religious society. And I would guess that if you would have asked a lot of these people, what's your opinion about Jesus? A lot of them would have had a lot of these answers, a lot of favorable opinions about Jesus, saying he's a, he's a great teacher, he's a great man, um, he was a great philosopher, all these different things. A favorable view, but would they have a biblical view? And um, they didn't. A follow-up study done by Pew Research in 2008 uh, indicated that, and this is weekly churchgoers, people that are committed to, to going to church every week, both Protestants and Catholics in this study, 54%, one out of every two, claim, well, salvation can be found through other means than Jesus. Not a biblical view. A Barna Research study, also done in 2008, revealed that 60% of Americans believe that Jesus committed sins while he was on earth. Another view that is also not biblical. So we live in a spiritual society where people believe in God, but they have a variety of opinions, opinions about who Jesus is. And, you know, that sounds an awful lot like a place that I've read about in the Bible called Israel. 
2,000 years ago. Very spiritual. We know who God is. We're God's chosen people. We know exactly what God's like and, and all of that. But when Jesus shows up on the scene, was everybody in agreement about who Jesus was? No. No, there was, there was a great number of different opinions about who Jesus was. People were very divided about who Jesus was. And so he asked the question to his disciples 2,000 years ago. He says, well, who do you say that I am? And he's asking us that same question today. It's just as relevant now as it's ever been. And so we're going to dive into that question. There's a few other questions we're going to look at today, too, kind of following our text out of Matthew chapter 16. It's really three questions that we're going to look at that Jesus poses to people and that his word poses to people back then, relevant to to us today as well. And I'm kind of a fill-in-the-blank guy, so if you want to fill in the blanks on your bulletin, you can. Um, Point number one is, who do others say that I am? Who do others say that I am? And uh, let's read this. Uh, I'll have this up here on the screen, or you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to spend most of our time in there today. And we'll start in verse 13, going through 14. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So just to give you a little background of what's going on here, Jesus hadn't been just doing ministry for like a month, and then he's like, hey, who do people say that I am? You know, where people had no idea really who Jesus was. Jesus had been ministering and preaching for about two and a half years. So the cross is in view. It's, it's kind of around the corner. He's been doing amazing things that no one has ever done, and with a magnitude that no one had ever seen. He'd been doing some amazing stuff this, uh, this question is posed to the disciples in three different gospel accounts, and here's some stuff that's happened right before he poses this question to his disciples in each one of those accounts. In Matthew, that we're, what we're looking at today, preceding this question, Jesus had cast out a demon. He had healed the lame, blind, mute, and crippled, and many other people in Matthew chapter 15. He'd done a miraculous feeding. He fed 4,000 men plus their families, so probably 15,000-ish people. Um, <clears throat> another miracle. In Mark's account preceding this question, the spit of his mouth opened the eyes of a blind man. Strange and miraculous. In Luke's account preceding this question, his voice stilled a storm. His voice raised a dead girl to life in Luke chapter 8. He exercised demons out of a guy that was crazy and sent them into a herd of pigs. Um, A touch of only his clothes healed a woman ailed by a blood flow condition for 12 years. He gave his power away to his 12 disciples to be able to preach powerfully, to be able to heal people, to be able to cast out demons. And he fed over 5,000 men and their families from five fish, or from five loaves and two fish. And so Jesus had been around, and people had heard of him, and he had been doing some amazing things. No one had ever seen this. So people undoubtedly had to declare, he's somebody special. I maybe don't necessarily know how special he is or where his power is coming from, but we have to say that he's somebody that's special. And the first answer they were given was, he's John the Baptist. Well, why would they say that? Well, people knew from the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, it says that a messenger would be sent to clear the way for the Lord who would suddenly come to his temple. And John was preaching, and he was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in Matthew chapter 3. Well, in Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus saying the same thing, exact same thing, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John baptized people who repented. Jesus' disciples baptized people who repented. Both of them preached very powerfully. And so a lot of people were convinced, well, maybe 
Maybe he's John the Baptist, reincarnated. Like, reincarnated. Well, John the Baptist was beheaded. And the very guy that beheaded him, Herod, he's one of the first ones saying, maybe this, maybe this is John come back from the dead. Herod began hearing about Jesus and what he was doing, and he exclaimed in Mark 6, 16, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. And so it made sense to a lot of people, a lot of similarities. Maybe Jesus is just John reincarnated. A very high and lofty view. John was a great, great man of God. The second view that people had was that he was Elijah. And Elijah, Elijah was considered by many Jews to be like the supreme Old Testament prophet. Um, he was the man. He would stand alone. In fact, he stood alone in front of 450 false prophets as the lone prophet he thought in Israel. And he said, I'm going to show you who the one true God is. And he's not yours. All 450 of you, they'd be like me versus all of you. Like, I'm going to stand up here and say that my God's the one true God, and you guys all have it wrong. And so they had a contest. Many of you heard this story. And they built two altars. They said, well, we're just going to start praying that God will just bring fire down from heaven on one of these altars, and then we're going to know who's telling the truth. And so, of course, the prophets of Baal can't do it. Elijah prays, boom. Altar gets torched, everything. And then he goes and he proceeds to kill all 450 of the false prophets. He was a man of intensity. He was a man that showed divine power through God's help. He prayed that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years, and it didn't rain. And then at the end of that three and a half years, he prayed that it would start raining. Guess what? It started raining. So he was an amazing prophet. In fact, he never even died. A chariot from heaven came down and whisked him away into heaven. And so the Jews thought, well, hey, maybe, maybe Elijah is, is Jesus. And here's a, why, a reason why they thought that. A lot of similarities, but in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, it declared that Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord arrived. So Jews thought, hey, He's going to come back from heaven. He's going to usher in the day of the Lord, kind of a forerunner before the Lord shows up. And Jesus kind of fit the bill for this. So a lot of people thought, man, he's the great prophet Elijah. He's finally here. A lofty view of who Jesus was. The third guy was Jeremiah. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet who lamented over the spiritual state of Judah and its coming destruction. It just really tore him up that Israel was not following the Lord. And we see in... Uh, a book in the Apocrypha, 2 Maccabees, that it says that Jeremiah had taken the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense out of the holy temple and hidden them to preserve them from the coming destruction of Babylon. He was concerned about these things. He's like, I'm not going to let them desecrate this stuff. It's way too important. I'm going to go and hide these. And so Jews thought at the time that Jeremiah was going to come back, get that stuff, and restore it to its rightful place in the temple. Well, we see that Jesus was awfully concerned about holiness as well. He was awfully concerned about the spiritual state of Israel. It says in Luke 19:41 that Jesus wept over Jerusalem and their spiritual state, and he preached judgment and destruction of the temple, just like Jeremiah did in Matthew chapter 24. So it seemed logical to think, well, maybe Jesus is Jeremiah, like reincarnated. I don't know. It seems to make sense, and it's a very lofty view of who Jesus is. The last opinion that people had was that he was one of the prophets, and Luke kind of adds to this statement in his account. In Luke 9:32, he says, one of the old prophets has risen again. So they're like, this guy is showing divine power. It's got to be because he's a prophet that's been resurrected from the dead. Maybe that's how he's getting his divine power. And all these answers made sense. All these answers really elevated Jesus to a very lofty position. And still today, like you saw in the video, a lot of people are saying, Jesus is a great man. He's a great teacher. He's a great philosopher. He's a giver. He's a visionary. But was this enough for Jesus? 
And did these great and lofty views really match his true identity? Was he satisfied with these answers that people were giving about him? And the answer is no, he wasn't. I'd like to read a quote to you by C.S. Lewis. It's a pretty well-known quote. It says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. So, answering that Jesus is anyone else except for Lord is not sufficient for him. So that leads us to our next question. Our next question is, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And uh, just to illustrate this point and play a little game and, and this game is called, How Well Do You Know Andy? And my buddy Shane is going to come up here to help me with this game. And just to tell you a little bit about Shane, Shane is going to be a junior at Cape Central this year. Hello, Shane. And Shane came to camp with us for the first time this year, and we're excited because Shane gave his life to Christ this year. And so we are, we are greatly uh, just rejoicing with him, and we are pumped about that. And uh, so we got to spend a lot of time together at camp. And we got to know each other better, and we talked quite a bit on the way home and all that good stuff. And preceding camp, we've kind of known each other over the last school year or so, not spent too much time together, but enough to know each other pretty well, wouldn't you say, Shane? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Let me get you a microphone. Um, so I'm going to ask Shane some questions, and the first set of questions are multiple choice. And do you like multiple choice, Shane? I like multiple choice. Okay, you're pretty good at those type yeah. of tests. Okay. And I've made this even easier than a normal multiple choice. We've got just two possible answers. So 50% chance. Think you can handle it? I think it works. Okay, all right. We'll see how well Shane knows me. Um, so where did I go to camp this year, Florida or Canada? Florida. Good job. One for one. That's where I went to camp. That's because you were there too, so yeah. I'm glad you got that one. Yeah. Good. <clears throat> so the next question is, where did I sit in the worship center during camp? Was it like kind of the front left, or was it like kind of the back right? Back right. Back right. Two for two. Good job, mm -hmm. Shane. Am I a Tennessee Volunteers fan, yes or no? Yes. Yes, and you know that because everyone harasses me about that, don't they? Yep. Yes, they do. Yep. Yes, they do. Um, am I married with children, yes or no? Yes. Okay, good. Um, and keep in mind that I'm a youth pastor for this one. Do I like the Bible, yes or no? Yes. Okay, all right, good. Hey, give them a hand, <laughs> five for five. Good job, Shane. So, so Shane's going pretty good. He, he knows me, and um, I'm going to take it a little bit deeper, though, and see just how much he really knows about me and how much he maybe learned about me at camp this year. Now, we're going to go fill in the blank, which we all know that's harder. That's just coming from Shane's noggin. I'm not giving you any help on these. Okay, Shane, ready? Darn. Okay, yeah. All right, so you say you know that I'm married with children, but what are my wife and kids' names? I don't know. Okay. Well, you've never met them, so that's understandable. <laughs> I'll tell you later. Um, how long have I been married? 
six, seven years? Six, seven years. That's a good guess. It's wrong, but it's a good guess. <laughs> <clears throat> it's more like 10. Um, where was I born? Tennessee. Tennessee. That's a great guess because I'm a Volunteers fan, but it's wrong. I was born in Cape. So, you're struggling, Chance. Uh, 0 for 3. <laughs> um, what was my, va- my favorite vacation spot as a kid? Canada? <laughs> no, it wasn't. I've never been to Canada. Different places starts with the sea. Colorado. Colorado is my favorite spot. So. Okay, and then um, what am I really praying about right now? I don't know. Well, I'm, really, I'm praying a lot for my own spiritual growth, that God would lead me uh, in my life. I'm praying about my wife and her homeschooling our kids for this semester, and that that would go well. I'm praying about uh, plans for the youth for this fall. That's some of the stuff I'm praying about. Cool. Yeah. And then last question, um, what am I really praising God about right now? Everything? Should be. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's real good. I'll, I'll go ahead and say that that's, no, it's not right, because I'm not, but I wish I was. But one thing I'm really praising God about is my, uh, my dad has had a lot of back pain over the last year and a half, and he finally had a surgery that's just really wiped out that pain, and he's able to be active again, and, and uh, his, his life is going much better for him. So I'm really praising God that that was successful. I'm praising God about you and Canyon committing your life to Christ at camp, so that's some stuff I'm praising God about. So, yeah, let's give Shane a hand. Thank you, sir. So Shane knows me, doesn't know the name of my wife and kids, but, you know, that's okay. We got, we got, some, uh, we got some more knowing to do. And um, the thing is, I understand. Like, I understand that Shane bombed some of those questions because he didn't know. He hasn't been around me enough to know. Um, but if I had my wife come up here, which she said, you better not do that, and I'm not going to because I'm smart. Uh, if I had my wife come up here and ask her some of those same questions... I would be really discouraged and really devastated if she didn't know the answer to those questions because we've been together for a long time. She's supposed to know me. And I think it was kind of the same way when we look at Jesus and the crowd and Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is asking, what does the crowd say about me? They're like, well, the crowd says you're a great dude, and you're a prophet that's risen from the dead. And he's like, okay. I understand if they bomb those questions, you know, if that question, if they don't get it right, I understand but you're my disciples. You have been following me around for two and a half years. You claim to know me. You've seen me do so many things, and you've heard me say so many things. And so I want to know who do you say that I am, because you claim that you know me. So it would be very devastating, knowing that the cross was approaching very soon, it would be devastating if the disciples did not know Jesus' true identity. So he turns his attention to them. So let's keep reading in Matthew chapter 16. This is verses 15 through 17. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. One more verse. Get verse 17 up there too. I'll read it in a different version. It says, Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Peter lifts up Jesus above all the answers of the crowd. He's like, they're saying that you're a great guy, you're an honorable prophet that you, that's maybe even risen from the dead, but I'm saying you are the Christ. And what does Christ mean? I will go ahead and give you a hint. It's not Jesus' last name. 
So if you thought that, you've learned something today. That's not the case. Um, it's actually a title, and it means the same as Messiah. It's just in a different language. And basically what it means is it means one who has been appointed or chosen one or anointed one. And we kind of get the Old Testament picture of a king who has been appointed, chosen, anointed for a great position that God has reserved for him. Uh, We see this in the story of of Samuel anointing King Saul and anointing King David. We see this in the story of Elijah doing the same thing for Elisha who was going to follow him as the great prophet of Israel. We also see this in Aaron becoming Israel's first great high priest, that he was anointed, appointed, he was chosen for that position. And all these men were important men, and they, they uh, filled important positions, but the Old Testament predicted there was going to be a coming deliverer chosen by God to redeem Israel, finally, perfectly, completely. And this deliverer the Jews called the Messiah, or the Christ. Here's one Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. This is Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Jesus quoted this very verse in the synagogue in Luke 4.21, and he said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, hey, that scripture, that's talking about me. I'm the guy. I'm the one that's going to come, and I'm going to set the captives free. I'm going to bind the brokenhearted. I'm the guy that's going to do that. And he declared in John chapter 4, verses 25 through 26, to the woman at the well, a woman that he barely knew, a Samaritan woman, he told her, I am the Messiah. She said, well, the Messiah's coming. He said, nope, he's here. I'm the guy. And interestingly enough, Jesus hadn't explicitly taught his disciples this yet. He's telling a woman he doesn't know, and he hasn't told his closest friends. In fact, they come in verse 27, and they're like, what are you doing talking to this woman? He's like, you know, it's like, I just told her I'm the Messiah. I haven't really explicitly told you that. I've alluded to it. I've beaten around the bush about it. Why not? Why has Jesus not done that yet? I always kind of wondered that. And here's kind of what I came to the conclusion of is that the disciples and the Jews, you know what? They knew Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. Um, they knew other similar prophecies, and they knew the Christ was going to come. He was going to right all the wrongs that Israel experienced. He was going to heal the brokenhearted. He was going to free the captives. And that meant to them that the Messiah, the Christ, was going to come in the anointing of God to put Israel back on top. Israel had been beaten down for hundreds of years. They'd had kingdom after kingdom, empire after empire that had come and had crushed them, had sent them into exile, had oppressed them. And so they thought, when the Messiah is going to come, here's how it's going to go down, is the empire that's over us at the time, they better look out. Because the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to crush them, and he is going to bring Israel back to the top, politically. But the thing was, Jesus had a different idea. Now, one day, he's going to have that idea. In Revelation 19, he's going to do that. But the first time that he came, he had a different prerogative. It wasn't necessarily about setting people free from physical slavery and physical oppression. Instead, it was about setting people free from spiritual slavery and spiritual oppression. It wasn't about what was going on out here. That's not your problem, Jesus said. What's going on inside, that's what your problem is, is you are a slave to sin. You have a spiritual issue, and that's why I have come. And people didn't understand that. In uh, John 10, 9, Jesus said, I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. 
John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And in John 6, 41, he said, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Well, was Jesus talking about physical things? things that, was he a gate? No. Um, was he uh, a physical way to something? No, he wasn't. Was he bread you could eat? Well, of course not. He was talking about spiritual truths and promises, and he fulfilled those things spiritually. Well, how do, how do people get that? How do people understand spiritual truths that maybe aren't right in front of you? 1 Corinthians 2.12 says, We have not received what is the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Only God's spirit can awaken someone's heart to the truth, to spiritual truth. And that's why Jesus declared to Peter in verse 17, you understand this now because my father revealed this to you. I don't know if you've ever had a good conversation with somebody about Christianity or about Jesus, and you're like, you know, all right, I, I kind of said what needed to be said. You know, I, I think maybe they're getting it, and you kind of get some feedback from them, and you realize it's just kind of like, they're like, I, I just don't, I don't understand the relevance. I don't understand the importance, or it's just kind of like, oh, okay, thanks for telling me. It's just not, you realize it's just not clicking with them. Uh, CMO Summer Project students, we go out every Wednesday and we share our faith with people. I mean, we've had plenty of conversations like that where it's just kind of like, they just don't get it. And it's easy to think, well, could I have said something differently? You know, maybe I should have done something, said something differently, and then they would have understood it. And, and I, I think probably not. Probably not. This is why prayer is so important when we speak to people about our faith. It's the Spirit of God that changes somebody's heart. It's not our words. Now, the word out of the Bible is very important to use when we get to share with somebody. Uh, according to uh, Hebrews 4.12, it talks about how the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, and it pierces to the division of soul and spirit. You want to pierce somebody's spirit or heart with spiritual truth? Then you need to use the word. That's going to be what does it. It's going to open somebody's eyes to the true identity of who Jesus was. So when Peter got this, there's a good chance you know how he was. He'd kind of speak up for everybody else and be like, ah, okay, I got this. You know, you're the Christ. And so there's a good chance that he maybe just wasn't speaking alone, but he was speaking for the entire group. So we, we believe you're the promised one that's come to save us. That's what we think about you. And Jesus said, well, then you're blessed. What does that mean? That means divinely favored. God's spirit has opened your eyes to spiritual truth about his son. Eternal life and a relationship with God, that's now yours because you've been awakened to that fact your confession of this is a great miracle that that's even happened. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, he says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, it says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This is a spiritual matter. Jesus said the most important thing that you need is you need to be set free from your sin. It's a spiritual condition that's much more important than anything going on uh, circumstantially. So Jesus was more than the forerunner of the Messiah, or a great prophet or philosopher. He was the Christ through whom salvation would come. And the only acceptable answer for his disciples and the only acceptable answer for us to give him today, because he really asks everyone that claims to be a disciple of his the same question, who do you say that I am? If we give any other answer, we fall short, and that's not enough to bring us into a relationship with God. I hope that you've made that confession today just as Peter has. And if not, Jesus invites you. You can do that at any time. He would love to begin a relationship with you. In fact, it says that whenever someone repents and trusts him as Lord and Savior, 
that his entire home, everybody that he's with up in heaven, they all rejoice over one person doing that. And he would love to begin that relationship with you today if you've never made that confession. If you have made that confession, which a lot of you probably have, um, maybe when you first made that confession and started living out your Christian life, you kind of felt like, you know, I didn't get this all spelled out for me exactly, kind of what all was going to go on and what all was required of me. Or maybe I'll burst your bubble on that today. But as we read a little bit later in Matthew chapter 16, we see that Jesus kind of talks about, okay, if you've confessed me as the Christ, what is it like to follow me as the Christ? So the last point is, what does it look like to follow the great I am? What does it look like to follow the great I am? And um, <clears throat> unfortunately, I've never experienced this because I was never good enough at football. But um, the college football recruiting process, as we said earlier, I'm a Tennessee fan. And um, the college football recruiting process is just amazing. Um, you have these guys that are 18-year-old kids, and you have big schools with tens of thousands of people, with uh, football teams that are on national TV weekly that are coming and they're coming after these kids and they want them to come to their school and so coaches will go out and they'll talk to the kid and their parents and they'll bring them to their university and and try to have get them to have the best time that they possibly can meet some of the stars that are already on the team and they're really wooing this kid hard to try to get this kid to come to their school and maybe you've seen this some now on ESPN or after like a high school all-star game they'll have these kids sit down at a table They'll have three hats of three different schools that they're thinking about going to. You ever seen this? And then they, some of them that are real arrogant, you know, they kind of act like they're going to pick one of the hats. And then they pick another one. They put it on their head, indicating this is the school that I'm committed to. And so you have fans across the nation that are seeing this, and they're fist pumping, and the coaching staff's like, yeah, we got him. You know, that's the guy that is going to turn our team around. He's the guy that we need to be national contenders. And um, <clears throat> the thing is, though, and I've, I've got to think that whenever these guys – finally show up to camp they've committed they've signed up they are on the team in fact there's no going back and if you decide to defect and go to another school you're gonna have to sit out for a year nobody wants to do that and so they have committed they're on the team and now they're an 18 year old lowly freshman on a team of 60 people and guess what if it's a good school all these guys were top recruits just like you at one point now you're just like everybody else and if you want playing time you need to go out and you're gonna have to prove yourself just like the guy next to you. Nobody cares how good you're in high school anymore. You've signed up, you're here, and um, you're just like everybody else. You're going to have to work hard every day to earn your spot. And I wonder if some of these players think, man, what a swing. I was on top of the world. People were practically worshiping me, and then now I'm just one of 60 on this team. And uh, that their bubble gets bursted. They might be thinking, I, I don't know if I really signed up for this. I thought I was going to continue to be great in everybody else's eyes. And I think sometimes in church, uh, many people can kind of be the same way. We get recruited by God's Spirit. God's Spirit opens our eyes to who Jesus is. We, we become a member of God's team, and then we decide to follow Jesus. And it sounds like, man, this is, this is awesome. I've got forgiveness of sin. I've got salvation. I've got an eternal home in heaven in a perfect place. I'm part of God's family. I get every spiritual blessing. I've got people that love me and serve me. This, this is awesome. And all those things are true aren't they? And those are great things about being a Christian. But at the same time, the daily grind of living for Jesus can just be really hard. It can be really tough sometimes uh, in your home, with your family. It can be tough at school. It can be tough at work. And sometimes you might think, you know, I don't, I don't know if I really was signing up for all this. And the disciples might have been thinking the same thing after they confessed 
Jesus as the Christ. But here's what Jesus says to him a few verses later in verse 21, going down to 25. It says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this should never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus was clear with Peter, you can follow me, but I maybe am going to be a different Messiah or Christ than what you thought. I'm a crucified Christ, and I'm a crucified Lord, and that's who you're going to follow. Uh, the word says in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And in Matthew 10, 22, Jesus said, you're going to be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. He tells Peter, if you want to kind of change God's divine plan for me, you're on Satan's side. Uh, it doesn't matter what your prerogative is. It matters what God's prerogative is. In fact, you're offensive to God if you're not with him on his agenda for this world and what he's doing. Jesus made it really clear that you're going to have to take up your cross if you choose to follow him. You've got to be willing to give up your own life. But ironically, he promises if you do, that's going to be when you really find happiness, purpose, and uh, peace. And I know I've experienced that in my own life. As soon as, when, when I'm wrestling for control, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do it my way, and I am going to find happiness. I'm going to find peace. I'm going to find purpose. It's me, me, me. I'm going to do it. And then I find that I can't find those things as much as I'm striving to get them. But as soon as I release control, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to do exactly what the Lord wants me to do. And then all of a sudden, I start to find that those things naturally follow. It's ironic, but it's true. Closing with this verse, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.15, it says, He died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. See, as we've talked about today, Jesus is more than a prophet. He's more than a great moral teacher. He's more than a great man or a philosopher. He was the Christ, and he was the one that was anointed and chosen by God to live a perfect, sinless life that we could not live. He was chosen by God to die a sinner's death that we all deserve to die. And he rose again to save us and to offer salvation to the world. Life is found only in him alone. And our confession of him is anything else, anything else that's less than that is not good enough for him. And so I, again, want to encourage you today uh, as we take communion. We're going to close with communion. This would be a great time to get real before the Lord and to ask yourself, have I confessed Jesus as the Christ? Like he's asking me. He's not just asking his disciples or the church or the crowds. He's asking me. Have I confessed him as the Christ? And am I following him in a sacrificial way like he deserves? And so that's going to be what, how we close uh, today. Communion is available in several different spots if you're new here. Take time to reflect on what was said today. And anything that God has laid on your heart, reflect on the salvation that Jesus has given you or offers to you and to examine yourself. And whenever you're ready, you can take communion. Let me pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it unveils to us. Uh, we can't figure things out on our own as we studied today. We can't just figure stuff out. It's your spirit we are reliant on. 
to change our hearts, to show us the truth. God, and I thank you that many of us here have already made that decision to follow Christ, knowing who he is. He's the Messiah. He's our only hope for salvation. He proved it by the things that he did, ultimately his resurrection from the grave. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, believe that with all of our hearts in such a way that we're willing to sacrifice for you, in such a way that we're willing to take up our own cross and to follow you. pray these things in Jesus' name.